Hi, listeners. I want to tell you about a cause that I'm involved with at Heritage Radio Network. HRN is celebrating its 15th year, and to celebrate, we're deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Introducing the TikTok Viral Lash Serum Grande Lash MD from the leaders in Lash and Brow Care Grande Cosmetics. Backed by 15 years of real clinical results, where 91% saw longer-looking lashes. With over 35,000 five-star reviews, this product started a lash serum revolution. With over 10 million sold and over 100 award wins brand-wide, believe the hype. Start your lash transformation today and get 15% off using code LASHES15. I'm so excited to tell you a bit about today's sponsor, Music Masters Collective. They're a nonprofit organization that produces unique music events, providing opportunities for fans and artists to meet and collaborate in an inspired and creative atmosphere. Every week, Music Masters Collective hosts different events, all with the opportunity to learn from world-class musicians like Bill Frizzell, Kurt Rosenwinkel, Julian Lodge, Mark Ribot, Wayne Krantz, O'Teal Burbridge, the Milk Carton Kids, and so many more. At an event like Alternative Guitar Summit Camp happening this August, you can expect in-depth workshops with guitar masters, once-in-a-lifetime performances, the opportunity to play alongside your favorite musicians, and a lot of fun. You'll leave this event packed full of wisdom and with a whole community of musicians to create with. This all-inclusive week in the Catskills Mountains of Upstate New York is guaranteed to be magical. Scholarships are available, but spots are extremely limited. So visit www.alternativeguitarsummitcamp.com backslash inside to learn more. Hey guys, welcome back to Inside the Musician's Brain. I'm your host, Chris Pandolfi, from the infamous String Dusters. And in today's episode, episode 7, I've got two great interviews, one with the up-and-coming Colorado band Trout Steak Revival. And after that, I've got part two of my conversation with Paul Hoffman. Part one was actually the first episode of the podcast. And today in part two, there's all kinds of great stuff about the songwriting process and the set list writing process for Green Sky. And we also get into Paul's thoughts on what is bluegrass and where is it headed? Always a juicy topic. So stick around for all that. I want to mention really quick that Inside the Musician's Brain is a part of the Osiris Media family. 
There's all kinds of great music and culture podcasts over at Osiris, so make sure to check that out. And I also want to let you guys know that today's episode of the podcast is brought to you by Diderio. These guys are truly an amazing company that has taken care of the string dusters every step of the way. They really make quality, durable gear, and they have a new line of strings out, the XT strings. I've had these things on my banjo for every show since the first box showed up in the mail. They feel great. They sound great. They're really durable, but probably most important for me is that they last. They're just lively over the course of multiple string duster shows, which are not easy on the strings. And this episode is also brought to you by Summit Publishing, which offers two awesome publications perfect for the outdoor enthusiast. Many of you guys already know that I'm a big outdoors guy, avid fisherman, conservationist, and Blue Ridge Outdoors is available from Summit Publishing in the southeast. That's at blueridgeoutdoors.com. And Elevation Outdoors can be found in Colorado's Front Range, and they're at elevationoutdoors.com. And they're both just a great resource for all your outdoor adventures, a great inspiration, all kinds of different things to do, and a great resource for music as well. The Dusters have been featured multiple times in their May Festival Guide. So make sure to check those out and remember to go outside and play. Always great for the soul. All right, let's jump right into it here. I got some great feedback on episode six last week in which I dug into some hilarious old String Dusters tour stories. So I promise there will be much more where that came from in upcoming episodes. But today I thought I'd talk a little bit about the role of a producer in the musical world and beyond as well. I got a bunch of questions about this in my post that I put up on Got Dusted. And I've got an interview that I'm going to air shortly with Trout Steak Revival. And I produced their last two records and really learned a ton in the process. So I thought I would share some of what that's all about. Taken out of context, the role of a producer is actually a pretty vague thing. You know, you're the overseer, you're the manager of a project, and you have to understand all your resources, all your goals, and you have to understand how to fully get in the moment and be present and do your best work. And when it comes to producing bands, you know, a band has all these different members, all this different material, different songs, all these different energies and vibes. One of the most crucial jobs and in some way the essence of being a producer is the ability to look at all of that and understand how these different things fall in again to those categories of strengths, weaknesses, goals, and then to figure out what your role is going to be, how you're going to fit in in sort of a transparent way because it's not about you. It's about bringing the best out of this organism comprised of all these different parts. So it's essentially understanding what that's all about. And of course, understanding your own strengths and weaknesses too, and how you can bring all that stuff together to create the best music, to create the best art. So it's very different in every different scenario. And again, I think having experience is really a huge key. I can remember in early recording sessions with the string dusters or as an individual just playing banjo, I had no process, no real method to how it would go down. But through years of experience and working with lots of different producers and engineers and, you know, the string dusters have had Tim Stafford, Tim O'Brien, Gary Pachosa, of course, Billy Hume. And I've worked with a number of different engineers and producers as well. And, you know, you get to learn so much every time you see them do their thing and you can 
pick and choose different parts of their craft that you perceive as really helpful. And a lot of that experience and a lot of the growth that happens over time is really around understanding that the recording studio is not a place to make some perfect music that's different than, say, the music that you make on stage or the music that you make when you're practicing or working on your craft. It's really about making the music that's most essentially you, making the statement that you most fully believe in and has nothing to do with perfection. And you cannot be focused on whether this is right or wrong, perfect or anything like that. And I think when you are young and relatively inexperienced, you perceive the recording studio as this place where you can perfect or polish the music on a level that you can't do in a live situation and you perceive the moment as one where you're capturing something that's going to bear repeated listens forevermore. So it's got to be something special. But what is special? Is special perfect and polished? No, special is authentically you. It's you being present in that moment and speaking in that original voice that you've cultivated. And of course, the studio offers us these days, nearly limitless options as far as tweaking, changing, fixing the music, tuning vocals, whatever it might be. And we get tricked because of all these factors into thinking that the studio is somehow this elevated process outside what we normally perceive the music making process to be all about. There's also the whole world of sound, and I've had a lot of experience as an engineer. I've had a studio here in my home for many years and had experience with different platforms and all kinds of microphones, outboard gear, and just having a knowledge of what's out there sonically. Producers all have some different matrix of how much they focus on vibes, songs, actual production techniques, and engineering, but for me, it all comes into play at some point, and I actually believe really strongly in not just the power of a great song or a great performance, but in the power of a great sound. And a lot of that can be accomplished with creative recording techniques, creative uses of gear, a deep knowledge of microphones, or just what sounds are out there. And as a fan of music, I know one of the things that really moves me is just a beautiful or intentional sound. I think of artists like BBO or I love Washed Out or artists like Boards of Canada, Nightmares on Wax, Tycho. And of course, these are all more sort of atmospheric artists. But even if you think of someone like Bill Frizzell, just the sound of one note from his guitar or the sound of Miles Davis holding out a note on trumpet is so evocative. And when you capture that correctly and you create the right sonic palette, that can be a big part of what makes the music move people as well. So try to bring all of that experience into the fold. But from a functional perspective, you know, there's usually uh, an order of operations to producing. And again, you know, I've worked with Trout Steak and done their last two records, did the last Meadow Mountain record, recently finished up the new Kitchen Dwellers record, Muir Made. And they all follow somewhat of a similar process. We start with pre-production, where we go over the songs that they've written and think about what's the best material and then try to arrange it in the most meaningful way for a band. And they'll have 
typically a lot of that work already done, but they'll bring me in and we'll hang for a few, you know, all day rehearsal sessions and go over everything and try and understand, okay, what are we working with here? and How do we make it best? And then it's all about going into the studio. And so we've got to choose and line up a studio and a tracking engineer. And of course, having an understanding of different sonic options and different sonic palettes comes into play here, as well as just having a big list of contacts and lots of experience at different studios and knowing what they're all capable of. And then from there, it's on to the tracking sessions. And this is probably the most crucial part in terms of the vibe work and getting the best out of an artist, helping them understand when they're putting their best foot forward and why, and then trying to just enhance that whole process. And I'll come back to talking about that in a minute because that's sort of the meat of it. But to finish this functional part of it, you know, after you've tracked the record, then you have to get it mixed and pick a mix engineer. And oftentimes the mix engineer will be different than the tracking engineer just to get a different set of ears on it and bring a fresh approach to how to mesh all the tones, the voices, and get everything to come to life and be as evocative as it can be. And then after mixing, it's on to mastering yet another engineer, and they are critical in the process and the sound as well albeit somewhat more transparent. It's more about making all the songs sound unified as a collection level-wise, and then, again, making everything pop when it comes out of the speakers. And there will be a different mastering process, for example, for the music that you hear, the digital audio on streaming platforms, than for something like a vinyl. A vinyl needs actually its whole own mastering process to sound right, when you put it on the player. So once you've got all the mastering done, then it's on to the last kind of functional part of things, which is the release plan. And that's essentially just helping the team figure out how they can get this record out in the world and calling on some of the experience that I've had around music business to help formulate the plan and to help execute it as well. And again, every band is so different in terms of what they need for all these different aspects of the process. But I think the most essential part, again, I mentioned it earlier, is in this idea of imparting the experience around what the studio is really all about. And the fact that it's not about creating something that's perfect, it's about creating something that's most essentially you. And I think that one of the biggest ways that a producer can influence that process and help move things in that direction, again, this is something that, you know, I wish I had had more experience on with early recordings, but you learn over time. And it starts before you hit record. And as you're heading into the take, it's not getting lost in the fact that you're in the studio. It's really getting lost in the music, in the performance, tuning into the moment, tuning into whoever else is playing, and really believing in the statement that you're making and just being present with everything that's going on. And it sounds simple, but this is just one of those lessons that I feel like becomes so much more clear as we get a little older. You just have to be present. That's what it's all about. And that extends into the next part of the process after the tracking is done. Then it's a matter of sitting in the control room with the band and listening to the two or four or five times that they played the song and trying to understand which one is best, which one has the most gravity. And this is such a tricky part of the process, especially when you're so in it that you're playing. It's hard to really zoom out 
and see the big picture. And a lot of times I try to almost just imagine that I'm a completely uninformed listener, a total impartial third party, and maybe even someone who doesn't know much about music because it's those uninformed opinions that I think really count. And a lot of the time, what someone who's hearing, who has no prior knowledge of the music, what they're hearing and how they're interpreting things is so different than what you're hearing. If you're on the inside making that music and churning it out, it's really hard sometimes to be a judge of those intangible qualities that will ultimately really connect with people. Now, of course, you use your knowledge of music and theory and all of these functional aspects, but after all the boxes are checked, you're really just tuning into the vibe and that visceral rhythm feel and how the sound of a, a note in the vocals just hits you and makes you feel something or any aspect of the music that just makes you feel. And I believe to create that type of music that will connect, it's really just all about that presence. It's about leaving your knowledge, your awareness of yourself at the door and just being immersed in that moment and really believing in what you're doing. And that's one of the ironies of experience. You know, you can do all this preparation and there's so much value to that. Again, just understanding what your strengths, what your weaknesses are, what your goals are, how you want to try to accomplish that. But then it really comes down to that moment of presence and a diminished sense of self and an increased connection to everything around you, all the energy around you. And that's really the thing I think that helps us reach our full potential as artists and also as individuals. You know, we're all producers of our own lives and it follows a very similar arc to this whole process with music. It's about understanding what you're capable of, understanding where you're trying to go, doing the work and mastering your craft. And then when that moment arrives, just being present and soaring as the individual that you are. I have really loved producing and the experiences that I've had working with other bands. It's such a treat and a great way to call on all this experience. And also, of course, just working with other people, seeing how they do their thing, learning in the process, and hopefully making some great music along the way. All right, let's jump ahead now to a short interview that I did a few weeks back when we were playing the Mission Ballroom. We had Trout Steak opening, and they've got a new record called The Light We Bring coming out in a matter of days. I'm sure it's going to be great. Love these guys. Here we go. Trout Steak Revival. Can't quite put my finger on it. All right, we're here on Inside the Musician's Brain, and we're sitting backstage at the Mission Ballroom with my good friends, Trout Steak Revival. What's up, guys? What's up, Chris? How hey. you doing, man? Here with Travis and Bevan, and I go way back with these guys, produced their last two records, mm -hmm. which we're all very proud of, and... Um, I understand that you guys have a new record coming out. Is that correct? That's right. Uh, January 31st, we're releasing a new record. Just a couple days from now. So let's, let's talk about the songwriting process and how the record came together for you guys. I know when we were working on past records, 
you know, everyone's contributing songs. How do you guys narrow that down and then go through the arrangement process in terms of like, okay, here's my song. Now it's going to become a trout steak song. What take me inside. I know what it's like when we were working together, but you know, these things get refined over time. And what was the process like this time around? Yeah. Um, it's funny to get to talk to you about this because, uh, you know, we worked with you as our producer the last couple of records and we all talked about in this process of, of having the songs come together, just how much we learned from you at that time and like kind of internalize some of that process of how do we cut the fat? How do we, you know, let the good things shine, uh, and, and like assessing the strength of our songs and each other's songs and, and kind of helping, uh, helping that process along. Cool. Love to hear that. Yeah. So that was, so thanks for that. So you guys are coming into recording and how many more songs do you have than end up on the record? Like, is it, twice as many songs or, you know, I know with us, it's, it, we don't usually end up cutting that much. We bring our A game stuff and most of it makes, makes it on the record. Yeah. I think that this record, we, um, didn't really cut that many songs. Um, it was, we had tried a lot of the songs out in live performance and like done a lot of work on the arrangement and everything. So I think they were all like, really nice like it was a really nice selection of songs and then once they come to the band how much time i know when we were working together it was we spent a lot of time in pre-production and just tweaking Mm -hmm. arrangements trying things you know before we ever hit the studio and then you sort of go through that process again once you're in the studio and in the control room was it Mm -hmm. a similar thing this time around yeah, I mean, our last album was released in November of 2017. So we've definitely um, experienced some of that, like um, just trying to make everything the best it can be. The s- songs on this album are a lot more like vulnerable and like maybe personal and emotional than like our we've allowed ourselves to write in the past. So that was like trying to figure out the balance of how much it's too much and how like how to write them yeah well you guys i love everything about trout steak but i think you guys are really gifted songwriters and that you know that's probably the most important thing when you talk about an artist's legacy you know is Mm -hmm. their body of work you know and if you think about any memorable legacy artist, you know, that's, that's really what stands out. So I'm, I'm psyched. I can't wait to hear what you guys came up with. So, um, what, what was really different sonically from the previous, you know, records that you guys have done? You know, I, I know there are some things that were different in the pro in the approach to this record. Take us inside that. Yeah. Um, there was this record. We wanted to try to open up the doors a little bit, uh, to be able to feature some different sounds and like, you know, stuff that's outside of our instrumentation. Um, and so there's a couple, there's a three songs on the album that feature, um, some reeds and clarinets and flutes. And, uh, uh, we worked with Mark Harris who, uh, you know, it was fun when we were looking into this cause, uh, we would just ask some friends who were like, do you know anybody who plays clarinet? And they were like, well, you know, there's these three guys, but if you could get this guy, if you could get Mark, then he's a, he's a badass and, uh, that'd be great. And so he said yes. And then we wanted the same thing for trumpet. Uh, and we got Shane Ensley from Kneebody and, 
I, like I didn't know how heavy of like musicians these guys were. Awesome. So how, and how did that work for you guys? Like, did you really dictate what they did and have a vision for what they did, or did you just sort of say, "Hey, here's this song. We're gonna cut you guys loose to do your thing." Like, what what was that like? Yeah, it was. Um, it was a little bit of both. Like I, I wrote a lot of parts out on piano, um, you know, just kind of rough ideas, kind of tensions moving back and forth. Um, but yeah, it was the more that I came to listen to more of their previous work and understand what kind of, what level of musicians these guys were, guys were that on the day of, I was like, listen, you know, you guys just feel free to make some choices around this. Like these are just rough ideas. You know, if, if something moves you, I want you guys to, uh, to kind of run with that inspiration and to get to see them process that. Like they just kind of took, took things in chunks and, you know, watching Shane like lay down three trumpets and harmonizing with himself. Uh, and, uh, and, and even some kind of accidents that happened, uh, in the room that, that, you know, one of the, uh, they they said that they got lost in the middle of it, but it sounded so good inside of the yeah. control room that we were like, "There's no way we're deleting that." Cool. <laughs> yeah. That's sometimes where some of the most magical stuff comes from. And I know your guys sound to me. One of the things I love about the aesthetic of Trout Steak is there is a lot of emotion in the music and it, and you know for a string band a lot of people just think about sort of that driving rhythm and i know that you guys do have some bluegrass chops and some bluegrass sounds in there but you know there's a lot of uniqueness too so i think it's it sounds awesome i can't wait to hear it and i guess bev you wrote some string arrangements for that too and then did you end up playing yeah. all that stuff as well yourself or did you guys bring in yeah string we kind of just called um all the fiddle players that we knew like my friend Ben Garrig played cello Eve Panning from um Lonesome Days was there Rebecca Durham um uh, Melissa McGinley it was just like oh, oh Dan Andrews <laughs> yeah so we we set up there was like a six-piece string section and then in the after a couple of takes we all switched parts so it was basically like a 12-piece string cool. section kind of feel at the end of this with song with only Bevin cracking the whip yep and making That's the amazing oh amazing home-cooked studio launches yeah. oh my gosh um, we definitely had the crock pot out for sure I I it's love necessary. you know it's hard it's hard as a producer it's hard to convince bands to get into the crock pot yeah. you know I can I can get them to do you know vocal overdubs or <laughs> add a piano or string section but you gotta write you, that into the contract <laughs> you guys you guys game changer that's right um <laughs> so exciting guys i can't i can't wait to hear it seriously i again really proud of the records that we worked on together and i think that you guys are just such a great ensemble playing wise writing wise all these things and Thanks, i'm super excited to hear it and it comes out just a few days from now right january 31st mm -hmm. and you guys are heading out on tour and yeah, we're Pretty doing soon. a CD like release run in Colorado with like the belly up on the second, and then out to Salt Lake City, back through like Grand Junction, Telluride, Crested Butte, and then doing like a Montana Pacific Northwest run 
And then a um, little Midwest run, too. Awesome. And yeah. I'm sure people can find all the info at... Troutsteak.com. Troutsteak.com. <laughs> cool. Well, we are mere hours away from a sold-out show here at the Mission Ballroom in Denver. Yeah, Troutsteak is yeah, opening. Buddy. Oh, thank you guys for being a part of it. Um, and can't think of a better band to have on the bill tonight. So oh, congrats thanks. on the new record. Thank you guys for being a part of tonight. And best of luck with everything that's to come. Thanks so much. Stoked, man. Thanks for yeah. having Awesome. Yeah. All right, great stuff right there from my good friends Trout Steak. And now it's on to part two of my interview with Paul Hoffman from Green Sky Bluegrass. Incredible songwriter. These guys are just an incredible band. So much to learn from them. I know I learned a ton from talking to Paul. This is from late last summer, but still tons of great intel, songwriting, band dynamics, bluegrass, you name it. Here we go. Paul Hoffman. So getting back to the whole album thing and when you guys are getting ready to go into the studio, do you have more songs than will be on the album that you're going in to cut? Do you cut them all and sort of see the lay of the land there? Or do you make those decisions mm-hmm. beforehand? How does that go down for you guys? Um, I'm not one of those writers who goes into the studio to record 12 and has like 30. Right. <clears throat> um, quite often we record almost everything. There's been like one or two no more than five songs, maybe the last couple records that we didn't use. Um, sometimes those are just like, with this record too, I submitted several songs where it was just like song chorus. And then that's all I had gotten. I was kind of like, you know, I had a couple like all for money where I had this whole idea of how it goes. And then there were a couple that were like, I was open to like different feels, different tempos need to write another verse. And then there were a couple that were just kind of like these, you know, ideas. So then do you bring the other guys in on that part of the process? Yeah, I would submit the idea. You know, there's the the song Do Harm that threw a Motowny on the record, Mm -hmm. um, and it's just completely groove-based. And I wrote it on my electric just messing around. And, like, I I submit a recording of that. And I'm like, look, this is really simple. It's, you know, just kind of an exercise for me. I just wrote it to sing it. Um, and sometimes that kind of stuff has the most room to grow as a band. Like then Duvall's got this idea for the baseline and if it's underdeveloped, it becomes more of a green sky thing. Cause it's like, I'm detached from it completely. It's not some active, it's not some emotional cathartic piece that I've been working on for two and a half years. It's just like a song. And then we just start messing with it. Well, Um, and you guys are a band. Yeah. And to some extent it makes a lot of sense whether you consider it part of the writing process or arranging process or however you want to label it, you know, from the time that you conceive a song to the time that it lands on an album and then ultimately makes it into the show, Mm -hmm. the band has to do their part in that thing too. Yeah. Um, and those songs are fun. That that's a fun process. So there's like some of that stuff didn't make it. Um, and we usually did with this record, we tried to record everything. Um, and then the intention was to like cut the stuff that wasn't as strong. Sure. Uh, we inevitably end up cutting stuff that's not as strong cause we don't get to it. Um, it's kind of usually the MO for us. Uh, we get the more and more time we give ourselves, the more and more time we spend on each little nuance. And now, do you guys do a lot of that in the studio or does that happen before you hit the studio? With this record, we did a lot in the studio Okay, <clears throat> and it was really cool to just like, give ourselves the creative freedom to 
a couple of these songs we recorded at like three different tempos and then recorded them like bluegrassy, back chop, you know, like totally different. Right. I mean, I think in, as we've made more and more records, we've become more experimental in some of those things. Right. And I think it's a, it's an, in a exercise in detachment, you know, like when I was younger, when Dave was younger as writers, you're like, it's this fragile thing you created and it's, you're vulnerable. You wrote a song. It's a serious, it's about your heart. You present it to these bandmates, yours, and they have suggestions for part they don't like, and you're defensive and Hmm. you're like, no, that's how it goes. And there's that kind of relationship, even with these guys who are your great friends. Uh, and we've gotten so much better as a band being a band, uh, for those conversations that now with this last record, I, I feel like it, it almost got hard sometimes because we were all so detached that we would try things like three different ways. And then we'd all sit there and be like, I don't know. I, which one do you, then we look at our producer and we'd be like, which one's better, dude, you tell us, we don't know. So what, what happens then? Sometimes we sat on it for like a week okay. and just moved on to a new song. Other times we, Recorded it and then came back and was like, eh, I don't know about that. Let's try it again this way. Sure. Um, it's it's interesting. And like, that's fun. That's yeah. studio fun. So another question about songwriting. I'm really <clears throat> interested in this myself. And, and you obviously devote much of your craft to songwriting. How do you know when a song is done? <laughs> Never. <laughs> uh, I don't. But... Uh, I mean, sort of I do, I guess, but sort of never, too. I change lyrics sometimes still for stuff we've already recorded. A year later, I'll sure. think of a better word, and I'm like, ha, oh, that makes way more sense. Cool. Or, But, you know, if I'm writing it, um, again, never. I like it, to, I like it to not be done until we arrange it. And sure. as I mentioned, with a lot of the stuff that I presented to the band, I quite often haven't written the last verse yet. Okay. Or maybe I have an idea for a bridge, but haven't written it yet. Uh, I find that my idea of the song when I'm shuffling on the guitar, singing it by myself and like really focused on the lyrics and what it means. Sometimes I miss the oversight of the song itself and what it sounds like. And then when the parts all start to come together, the song has like, takes on a purpose beyond my lyrical intention. Mm -hmm. I'm like, Oh, this drives, it needs this. And then I know what to write for the end or how to, or often I don't write choruses. I'll write a bunch of verses and sure. um, not write a chorus because I don't know what the like presentation at the presentation leads a lot sometimes to like what's needed there. Yeah. Um, well, and it's cool too the idea that maybe a song is never done. I mean, we we write about these personal topics, experiences, and. And then we evolve mm-hmm. as people. And I think it's cool. And, I'm, and I know that guys in, in the string industry. Introducing the TikTok Viral Lash Serum Grande Lash MD from the leaders in lash and brow care Grande Cosmetics. Backed by 15 years of real clinical results, where 91% saw longer looking lashes. With over 35,000 five-star reviews, this product started a lash serum revolution. With over 10 million sold and over 100 award wins brand-wide, believe the hype. Start your lash transformation today and get 15% off using code LASHES15. 
Hi, this is Chad Nicefield. And this is Justin Press. We're the host of Making Waves, the Shiprock Podcast, a part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. We're inviting you to sail away with us on an epic journey in musical enlightenment. Every week, we bring you only the best artists in rock music and discuss everything from the cruise to the stage to the saga of being a professional recording artist. We'll have lots of special guests along the way, so tune in every week. Your stateroom is available every Monday morning, so welcome aboard. What is a city without its music? The legacy of the New York Philharmonic is incredible. Nearly two centuries of history. That's a lot of music and a lot of stories. I was sitting on stage for the very first time thinking, I can't quite believe this is happening. Join me, Jamie Bernstein, as we explore the history of the New York Philharmonic. It's the NY Phil story made in New York, a podcast about a city, its people, and their orchestra. Listen wherever you get podcasts. I've done this too, I've just changed lyrics down the line. Maybe this thing means something different to you, and ultimately, maybe this song could be better. You know, maybe yeah. it can evolve from what it was. And it's cool because we're, we're always evolving, you know? And, and that's, I think, part of that responsibility thing to the audience. You know, if we just lock it in and here it is, you know? But when they're coming to see you night after night, you know, they... They want to see, I think, to some extent, that growth factor, too. Not just in the progression of all the different art that we put out, but maybe even in the context of changing one thing as it goes along. Yeah, exactly. So in terms of songwriting and Green Sky and how this whole thing comes together, first of all, congrats on the new album. Thank you. All for Money. So, So awesome and such a great, I think, kind of proof of concept for you guys. It's... It sounds great. It really represents all the strengths of the different band members, and your songwriting is just on full display. It's evocative and awesome, and the way the music and the words mesh up, like I said, is just... It's great, man. Really a success. And I've I've loved checking it out, you know, as as we were leading into getting together today. And I wanna just ask you about a few songs that, that struck me. Do it alone. Heaven's gonna pass you up for living life like this. Where did that one come from? What What is that all about to you? Um, it's raw emotion, man. That's like what I was going for with that song is like that kind of anthem thing we were talking about. Just like the like very um, cathartic. Um, it's almost like a scream or something like an anguish for sure. Uh, and we, the thing we were just talking about not finishing the songs, this song, uh, the chorus, I intended to write a chorus. I wrote the song, the verses are all about, you know, like they're focused on what it's about and stuff. And I get to this chorus part and I know it's just gotta be this real powerful thing. So I write this repetitive, why do why we do, do, do it, it alone? alone? And it's mostly just like a melodic thing. And then I think when I know later what the song needs, I'll come back and write a chorus. Got it. And then as the band starts learning and it's so powerful, I'm like, words would get in the way there. This is really, it should just be a simple chorus hmm. because of so much of the like analysis that's going on in the lyrics of the verses. That well, that's what I was going to say. I mean, never, it comes in so strong. You know, heaven's going to pass you up for living life like this. And just like... Kind of looking around, like, is anyone checking me out right now? I mean, but I know what you mean. There's there's a lot 
to digest basically in the verses. Mm-hmm. And then there's a release, you know, and, but I mean, what is, you know, why do we do it alone? Like what, what is underneath that? Yeah. I think it's, um, you know, it's the, it's like the anthem of that thing we were talking about where you come together with all the people at the concert and let Love your that. pain go. For sure. Um, and I, I think I'm writing about that process that happens at our shows and with me and with the crowd and the song, you know, it's at times is maybe melodramatic and contrived for effect for me. Like it's not like some specific line points to a specific thing every time. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, then there's this irony where all of a sudden we're all, it's this like scream along chorus. That's what that one note and it's three words or whatever, do it alone. And you got a b- bunch of people together screaming why do we do it alone it's like that you're not you're all together here yeah. we're all in this together it's like <laughs> well and there's an awesome the juxtaposition of the reality of the condition you find yourself singing in and what you're singing play against yeah. each other to reveal that in fact you don't something like that's happening well me. and also just that juxtaposition of like super simple but also super deep and complex <laughs> personally you yeah know? the expression of something or I guess the ability to express together in just this simple refrain, something that's like way deep in there, you Mm -hmm. know, might really make a lot of sense. You know, it's just, it's that visceral thing. It's that just letting out, you know, and it sounds like you guys see that at the concert. Yeah. And it's like you say, it's that interesting example of something so simple as somehow more profound than the other version. Yeah. Like, you know, what gets you more the emotive scream along? Why do we do it along chorus or the like introspective lyrics? Like mercy doesn't hide and wait for a suitable punishment. Mm, That's my favorite one. That's a great one. Talk, (laughs) talk to me about, about ashes. There's no safe way across the room and no one's prayers are answered too soon. But I can remember when you first fell for me Near the bottom I was mostly empty Ashes in the moonlight make the time stand still If no one's loved you this much then I will And it is the morning's time to come Let's not finish what we have I love this line. And if my love is strong enough to hold you up, maybe I can think I'm enough. (laughs) Like another one, you know, it's, it's, it's deep. It's really personal, but there's also something super universal about that and love and your connection to someone and sort of how it informs how you feel about yourself kind of. Yeah. I, um, it's my attempt at a love song. (laughs) It's in a minor key. (laughs) Uh, and it's got all these, there's all these like moments in the song of like self-questioning and doubt, um, which are not things that you're supposed to find in a love song. So it's a very honest love song for me. Um, I wrote it on the piano actually for Michelle in front oh. of her. No way. <laughs> we were just kind of hanging out Love one day that. and I was tinging around on the piano and I wrote um, a, a verse and a chorus and another verse, just simple chord progression. And then later went back and moved it to guitar. But there were all these spots in that song where like that line, 
that become more about myself and like the doubt of giving your love to someone. And I, while writing it was like, should I brighten this up and like make it don't more, do it. Like, I, I'm don't almost do it. like sometimes hesitant to like tell people it's a love song about my girlfriend. Cause they'll be like, my fiance, my baby mama. Right. They'll be like, is, is your relationship okay? Like <laughs> he's, you sound in doubt, but, um, you know, I come from this place where doubt breeds, uh, intention or something. Absolutely. Like if, if I was so sure of myself that maybe I would be blind to my flaws or something. Um, and, and that vulnerability is something that everyone has, mm-hmm. you know, and giving a voice to it is, the first and I think oftentimes the most important step to transcending it or not even necessarily transcending it, just sometimes acknowledging it and being with it, Yeah, you know, because we, we are all these things and, you know, we, we change, we evolve. But, um, I think that that's something I know that I've certainly grasped onto as I've moved up in years is, <laughs> you know, just trying to be real about, all these things. And when you can, as an artist, as a musician, give them a voice, you open the door for fans to do that too. And even though it might not be the most conscious process, it's clearly what's going on with a lot of really lasting music, art, everything, everything, you know, it just makes you think and opens you up to, yeah, being vulnerable, you know, if all we ever sang about was, you know, what an awesome time I had last night at the show, <laughs> you know, you can give me a co-write on that one. <laughs> um, and then what about, tell me a little bit about collateral damage. Cause this one's got it's oof, sad, right? An, <laughs> some real zingers in there. Just heavy lyrics, man. I mean, really, you know, really honest. Seems like really personal. What? Where did this one come from? Yeah, um, came from a pretty personal place. And I do this thing now as an exercise where I try to take myself out of being the speaker. Sometimes I speak about myself from mm-hmm. the second person. Um, it's interesting, too, that a lot of these, like, really emotional ones that I get asked about, too, are the ones that come out of me, like, quick. Like, I sat down one day upstairs again daytime early morning writing sometimes is my most saddest most inspired i just picked up the guitar and wrote that in one swoop and how long did that swoop last 40 minutes 40 maybe. minutes okay wow <clears throat> like a little bit that. of editing I, as i write a verse and a chorus i record and then i move on because i forget otherwise even if i stop to write stuff down i forget so i just record and then repeat record repeat sure but yeah there's some sad stuff in there i started trying to and like from a lot of different perspectives too, I do this narrator shift thing when I write a lot where like one time I'm thinking about like somebody unforlorn, like unrequited love, like it's kind of what's going on in that song, um, like hoping and longing and not getting it. And then, and then I'm thinking about a friendship that failed. And then I'm thinking about what it feels like to be laid off after 30 years mm. and let your family down. Like I'm trying to, I go into these narrative shifts. So sometimes there's like a lack of consistency through the narrative occasionally, like an image doesn't play well for the other image. Mm -hmm. Um, But it also works the other way for me a lot too. I find that if I'm like, 
then when I'm writing about one narrative position and I go back and reapply the lyric to the other one, it's like illuminates this image or this idea that didn't exist. You know, maybe while you're, you're thinking about losing your buddy, you say one thing. And then when you go back imagining what, you know, that love that you lost years ago thinks about you, some, something is illuminated that you never saw. Sure. And it, they both apply to each other. So, Congruously, so it's not necessarily linear, but these things work together to basically sort of illustrate a bigger yeah, point. Yeah, it's like I'm writing about a a feeling more than sure. like a coherent narrative. So this feeling of longing, um, sadness, and how it can, you know, manifest itself in so many different ways. And I sure. think that when you're feeling that way, it does too. You know, if you if you lost your love you may be feeling bad about yourself and then start thinking about how it sucks. Your cable doesn't work or something like you start to reapply this feeling to these other things that are not related. Sure. Um, and so really just that feeling is fair game and anything that causes it or is affected by it or anyone else that's affected by it all sort of come into play as like ways of understanding why yeah. you're feeling this way and how to not feel this way. I love that's that. It's just getting real like, <clears throat> metaphysical or something, but, um, I do. So I then it's that. like, it becomes difficult for me to be, get real specific about the song, you know, like I remember hearing about Eric Clapton writing the way you look tonight or you look wonderful tonight mm -hmm. while he was waiting. What's his wife's name that was married to George Harrison, Patty, something like that. He wrote it in 20 minutes while he was waiting for her to get ready to go to a party. Right. And I remember just this, one of those stories that sticks out to me that that's like, that's what that song is about. Sure. And quite often I just like, can't do that with the song. Yeah. 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 Cause I'm like, well, that line is from this time. Sure. I was doing this and sure. Well, keep doing what you're doing. Man. <laughs> Cause I love your songs. And I think that it's funny as you look out across the music world, there's all these bands and, you know, it's this very intangible thing. What is success? You know, and, and I think that for you guys, the proof is in the pudding, man. People connect with these songs and, you know, they're supporting you guys and coming out to see you play. And I think that that really speaks volumes about what you're coming up with and how it's affecting people. And, you know, ultimately, yeah, the idea of success is very intangible. You know, it's on a very personal level, but it's also something that can be measured by this external metric. But I think, you know, how many people buy the album or come to the shows? But I think that what you guys are achieving and what you specifically are achieving through your songs is is awesome. It's a connection. It's very real. And, um, you know, it's obviously a big part of what's what's made you guys so successful. And I want to talk a little bit more really quickly just about Green Sky I'm just curious, you know, from the inside and from your perspective, what are some of the things that have helped catapult you guys to where you're at now? Things that have connected with the crowd, things that you guys have really designed as a band, whether it's the show, like what are those things that you are very intentional about that you've crafted that you think are really resonant with the people and, and, you know, helped you guys grow to where you're at. Um, yeah. I, the measure, like you say, the measurement of success can be this tangible thing where it's record sales, concert sales, or it can be this 
passion that we have for the music and that we're able to do something that we're passionate about. And, you know, I'm able to be creative with these songs in a way that is so personal and so real for me that it is not, it's not like writing songs for record sales at all. I'm constantly measuring myself against my own creativity and my own satisfaction from this art. And I think that's the most important thing for the fans um, and for our success that vulnerability and honesty. And, you know, I mentioned earlier that if there's ever a question of should we, or should we not, the answer is if it makes us happy, it's what we should do. And I think that that is the most important part of our success. So you relate that to like adding this huge light show and people really like it or playing two sets um, or having a 20 minute improvisational jam that could totally fall on its face. Uh, that all those things relate to, or come back to just us being fulfilled with what we're doing creatively. And that's what, it's such a snake eating its own tail. Cause when we're creatively fulfilled, the fans are creatively fulfilled and it's like synonymous well, when- uh, with, you know, the, 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 they come to witness us. Well, we keep using the word vulnerability, but they, they come to witness us put on the show, but the show is not a performance of the record. It is, it's not playing the solo. It's taking chances and being present, just being present. Yeah. And like, recognizing that that performance is not a one-way thing that we're not up there just performing at you. Sure. We're performing with you. Like if you're into it, we're into it. And if you're listening, we're playing different. Yeah. Um, if you're partying, we're playing different and all those things. I think understanding that I think is what our band is and what our success is. Um, and when you get that ball rolling in that direction where, it's sort of that kind of two-way authenticity. Like it has you guys doing what's really meaningful to you and it has the audience in the place that they want to be. And it sort of gets this feedback cycle going. Yeah. Like, and maybe the short answer to your question is like, we made the crowd a part of the show and that's, that's the thing that has made it a success. Yeah. They can't, and then it comes back to all the other things we were talking about. The same songs, like that, the, that song's a part of them, and it's a part of their show experience. So they want to hear new songs they've never heard, but they also, when they hear that song, it's right a part of them. Or when this lyric happens, they high five this friend, or like whatever. It's all a part of something bigger than bigger than the song, bigger mm-hmm. than the venue, bigger than us, bigger than them. Yeah. And what about more specifically, just about the concert experience? How much do you guys, I would assume more when you're on the road, you play a show and then you sort of download with each other. What was good? What what worked? And I know for us, a lot of that has taken place over the years and it's been great. It's a chance for us not only to connect as artists and be on the same page in terms of doing, like you said, if you're doing the thing that feeds you and mm-hmm. is real to you, but also taking note of, of what works. Like, what does that look like for Green Sky? Is that a thing that goes down in real time on the road and then, you know, you can put it into action the next day? Or is it more of a bigger arcing thing? You know, how do you guys approach that? Uh, like, my answers are all, it varies. Uh, <laughs> well, it varies. Sometimes it's real time after the show. It depends on what it is, sort of. Um, we are really good about working on stuff at Soundcheck before sure. the next time we play. Um, and this was real true with all this new material. That some of it was like difficult to perform for us. So we were working on it at Soundcheck for weeks. Um, but th- those creative 
moments and jams and stuff. We, oft, occasionally we have like a sit down where we talk about improvising as this unnameable beast and apply various different concepts to different jams and different songs. And, you know, but what's interesting is that quite often we don't discuss a lot. Um, you know, and I, I hesitate to make that sound like we're lazy or like we're neglecting something, but we kind of have this theory that magic can happen if it's not overly analyzed mm-hmm. in a way that it can't the other way around. Sometimes if we overthink things, then they become less interesting or less free to develop. Um, you know, and I'll find that like we write these set lists sometimes that are like this masterpiece of segues and like the most creative, like linear 75 minutes we've ever played. And it's not the best show we ever played Sure, because there's all these moments where people are looking around like, what was that next transition we planned? Yeah. And the times when we go up there and we just play like the six songs that we play the way we intend to just play them normal. Then there's this freedom to go wherever the hell we want. Um, Well, and sometimes that's the, that is the magic of that process is almost designing it and thinking about it, being intentional about it so that you can be free. Yeah. You know, almost like you say, and maybe that's the intentional part for you guys is not looking at things too carefully or at least leaving it open by design so that can go anywhere. Yeah. So we pl- we'll plan stuff and we'll work on like new ways to do transitions or new ways to build tension in a jam and we'll talk about stuff and apply it. Uh, and then we'll let it go for a while. Yeah. And we, we have this real like laissez faire kind of thing where, Every time we're discussing something, it's like, well, you know, I just think it'd be better if this happened and then this happened or whatever. But also, (laughs) like, you know, like if you don't agree with me, that's fine, too. But now I've said that I think that would be neat. And then maybe now you see that, too. Sure. And also, sometimes we talk about stuff and we all have such a different opinion about what happened. Right. Um, Or a different musical way of understanding it. We're all different musicians. Right. um, I, don't, I, I assume that a lot of bands are probably this way and not, you know, we're not like four Berkeley kids that are in a band together. Some of us understand music one way. Some of us understand it another. So sometimes those conversations can be, make it worse almost. Yeah. Like if someone's trying to understand what happened and another person's explaining it a different way. And it's like, well, it worked. So just don't think about it next time. <laughs> and ultimately, I think, I know for me, even though decisions can be made and you can give thought to the direction of a show by far the most important thing is being in that moment with Mm -hmm. the people. And, you know, I think if you can accomplish that sort of all doors remain open and that thing can happen, um, you know, and it sounds like you guys are, you know, employing that to some extent. I'm curious who, who writes the set list? Myself, Anders and Bruza. Wow. All three of us. Three headed snake nightly. Nightly. Wow. Okay. Usually one of us takes the lead or two of us if we're together, but it's the three of us. Yeah. So you got singer, singer and showman there. Yeah. Uh, it works. It's, it can be daunting, but it sure. works. Uh, three works too, because veto power, you know, got it. We lobby against each other. It's pretty entertaining. Nice. Just real little mini political struggle. This is, this is great. I'm really enjoying rapping about all this is awesome. We're coming down the home stretch here and I want to I want to ask just really quick a little bit about bluegrass 
and like your guys' connection to bluegrass. It's a a hot topic these days, (laughs) you know, and you guys have the word in the name of your band, you know? Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) No. I say, oh, yes. You know, you guys are opening the door for a lot of people to take a look and see what this thing is because Mm -hmm. they're, like everything we're talking about, there's no right answer. You know, it's it's all these things. And ultimately, when that new person comes in the door, their opinion and sort of take on it is just as valid as anyone else's. But I'm, I'm just curious to know, do you guys consider yourselves a bluegrass band? <laughs> uh, I don't know. Yes, no. It is in the name, like you say. And it is a hot topic. People, this is a question that we get asked a lot. Yes, I think yes. Sometimes I think no. Well, what what connects? <laughs> what what is it that connects you guys to bluegrass and like and in well, it? yeah, we certainly have that instrumentation. You know, we're five guys playing stringed instruments. There's no drummer. You know, we're a ensemble, rhythmic, rhythmically shared, or the responsibility of the rhythm is shared between all these stringed instruments sure. in a very bluegrass way. Um, I think that our our roles in the band in that specifically that rhythmic responsibility is very bluegrassy. Uh, and you know, like I chop the banjo rolls, uh, the guitar strums on the downbeat, the bass usually plays the downbeat. Um, that stuff is like, that's what bluegrass does. That's what we do. So in that way, even if we're playing something like do it alone, which is very not bluegrass, Mm -hmm. very much like rock and roll, we're still doing a very bluegrass thing. I'm still chopping the backbeat. Yeah. Bass still driving the downbeat. Uh, so is it bluegrass or is it not? I don't know. Um, well, like it or not, <laughs> it's in the name. It's in the name. And I think that that's, to me, that's meaningful because I think you guys are in a lot of ways a bluegrass band. And that, the, the, essentially what that means to me is that the music is evolving. And mm-hmm. I think that's, I think that's awesome. And I think that's going to be a big part of what makes bluegrass last. And honestly, I would be willing to bet that you guys have opened the door for a lot of people to look back and see what is Flat and Scruggs, what is Tony Rice, you know? And, yeah. and um, you know, there's, even though bluegrass can sort of be misconstrued in its current form, kind of as the art of imitation, there's unlimited amounts of soul in that music, you know, it's history and also just in the sort of raw musical, you know, part of it, the sound of Earl Scruggs's banjo or Bill Monroe's tenor or whatever. And I'm curious of what are some of the, what are some of the more traditional, you know, bluegrass bands, artists that you guys connect with? Uh, in the early days of the band, when I was telling you that I met Bont and Bruza, the the seldom scene was really big for us. Awesome, uh, and I, it's been a while. Maybe I'll listen to some seldom scene today. And you know, I think that I, it's important. That band's important for us because they were like a bluegrass band, but they were like kind of raucous and silly, and you know, making jokes and playing rock and roll solos for yep. fun and doing all like this. There's this showmanship to live at the cellar door. There's no rules. Yeah, um, the new grass revival was a big deal because sure. it was like progressive sure. and poppy and you know Sam Bush obviously is the man for me. Uh you know and we all came to it through Olden in the way. Those three bands maybe all sort of have that same sort of like relationship to the a rock and roll attitude, you yeah. know, of like just like 
disregard for rules or something. It's interesting how bluegrass somehow lends itself to this conversation too. I was thinking while you were talking like the songwriter, singer, songwriter music, no one like Bob Dylan's got this formula of like this folk song or something that existed. That's singer songwriter. But then some guy 20 years later uses a different chord and people aren't like, that's not singer songwriter music. (laughs) Well, it's so true. And, and bluegrass has that, it has, times a million. Yeah, why? And it's like it's a. It's a I often think it's just a f- false com- fantasy conversation. Like we're we're sitting around talking about it. I've talked about it in interviews, but I've really never been like a, verbally assaulted for doing it wrong. Sure. Like, well, you better watch. It, out I, I've seen because... people. I guess I've seen people <laughs> leave the concert before, and I've heard stories about people being, you know, disenfranchised by delay pedals and stuff like that, but. Well, people, <laughs> people are always going to form their own opinions and that's, you know, that's, that's what this thing is all about. You know, you open the door for them to come in and see you play. And I think the interesting thing about that whole bluegrass conversation is music, no matter what you call it, no matter what genre you think it belongs to, it, it starts just inside one person and their connection to a tradition or rules of how this thing is supposed to go. You know, I think the more personal the music gets, oftentimes the more those things break down. And a real a real stride with personal expression doesn't adhere necessarily to the rules of a tradition. And when I hear you guys play, I hear this great blend of a lot of things that do come from bluegrass, the instrumentation, the styles that you guys play. And then that all is mixed with songwriting and your songs, the way they come to life and draw on the things that are great about bluegrass, but also expand on those things to bring your stuff to life in a style that's more appropriate or fitting. Just that's the point. Mm-hmm. Right, to bring your songs to life. And if there's parts of the bluegrass thing that are going to do that, that's great. And if there's people who are going to leave the show because of delay pedals, <laughs> then there's nothing you can do to stop that. Right. But I think all in all, bluegrass is really lucky to have you guys out there doing the thing. And I think that even though traditionalists will gripe about, that's not bluegrass or, you know, it's got to be played this certain way, Ultimately, what they don't recognize is that down the road, you guys are going to be, not down the road, you already are a big part of what Bluegrass has become. And I think that that's really cool. And I think that that's going to ultimately, like I say, open the door for a lot of those more classic acts that do deserve recognition. I mean, the music is so deep and soulful. And if all it ever does is repeat itself and sort of regurgitate the same form, people are going to lose interest in it. Right. And I think evolution is what keeps a style alive, and I think you guys are a great example of that. Thank you. You're welcome. (laughs) Paul, this has been so great, man. Thank you for doing this. Great work on the new record. Best of luck with everything you've got coming up. And, uh, yeah, man, thanks so much for being here. Thanks, Chris. Absolutely. All right, that's going to do it for episode seven. Thank you guys so much for tuning in, and a huge thanks to today's guests, Trout Steak Revival and Paul Hoffman. Inside the Musician's Brain is a part of the Osiris Media family, and today's episode was brought to you by 
Diderio, makers of the XT Strings, among other things, and also Summit Publishing, which brings us Blue Ridge Outdoors and also Elevation Outdoors. Make sure you check those out and check back with us in two weeks for more heady music listening. Thanks for tuning in to Inside the Musician's Brain. Introducing the TikTok Viral Lash Serum Grande Lash MD from the leaders in Lash and Brow Care Grande Cosmetics. Backed by 15 years of real clinical results, where 91% saw longer-looking lashes. With over 35,000 five-star reviews, this product started a lash serum revolution. With over 10 million sold and over 100 award wins brand-wide, believe the hype. Start your lash transformation today and get 15% off using code LASHES15. 